evening, everyone, and welcome to the University of Sydney. Um, I'm Hayley Channer. I'm the Director of the Economic Security Program at the United States Studies Centre. And before we get started tonight, I just wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I wanted to welcome you to the event tonight, which is all about how to counter a Taiwan crisis with economics. And we're really, really lucky to have Mr. Adam Smith here. Anyone who knows economics knows that Adam Smith is a very famous name. And this Adam Smith is carrying on that great tradition of political economy. I wouldn't call you the father of economics, but maybe you're the father of sanctions, Adam. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. Um, but we want to have a bit of fun tonight, even though this is a very serious topic, and we will definitely get into that side of it. Uh, I come to this event tonight not knowing anything about sanctions. The Economic Security Program at the US Study Center is a very broad program. It covers many topics from financing national security, supply chains, regional economic infrastructure. It does not include sanctions. So I am going to learn as much tonight as we all will, thanks to Adam. Um, but I wanted to have a bit of fun to begin with, um, just around playing around with this, this idea of sanctions and how much people, average, average everyday people, know about sanctions. So I know it's a Thursday night, uh, it's kind of coming to the end of the week and people are probably tired, but I am going to ask for audience participation. So to get started, I want to do a bit of a quiz, a pop quiz to see how much people actually know about sanctions. Um, so thank you so much to my colleague Georgia for helping us out. Georgia knows all of the answers, so she's not allowed to contribute. Um, so the first question I'm going to ask is, which is the most sanctioned country in the world? Your options are North Korea, Russia, or Iran. If you think it's North Korea, put your hand up. Okay, few. If you think it's Russia, put your hand up. Well, there's a clue. <laughs> if you think it's Iran, put your hand up. Okay. Well, look, Adam, I might have to cut you out of this yeah, as well. Couldn't participate. Because it is Russia. Um, the next question is how many sanctions have been placed on Russia? Is it more than 12,000? Is it more than 5,000? Or is it more than 1,000? Hands up for 12,000. Yes. 12,000? Hands up if it's more than 5,000. Hands up if it's more than 1,000. Okay, well, the people that went in deep for 12,000, you are correct. 12, more than 12,000 sanctions on Russia. Oh, no it only includes the 10 of stars, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the final question before we get into the actual uh, presenter tonight is um, which country has placed the most sanctions on Russia? Is it Japan, the United States, or Switzerland? Put your hand up if you think it's Japan. One for Japan, two for Japan. Put your hand up if you think it's the United States. A lot for the United States. <laughs> Put your hand up if you think it's Switzerland. Switzerland? Oh. It is United States. No surprises there. So look, we've all done a bit of a quiz about what we know or don't know about the wide world of sanctions. Um, let's get into this topic properly now, Adam, and, and move into the real expertise around this subject. Um, we've heard a lot about sanctions the last well, year and a half now after Russia invaded Ukraine. Can you give the audience a sense of um, why sanctions matter now? Um, do they matter more now than they ever have? Are they losing relevance? And why do governments turn to using sanctions as a tool of economic statecraft? So it's it's a very good question. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad. First of all, I'm very pleased to be here. It's always nice to be back in Sydney. To, I'm originally from Sydney, despite my silly accent. I actually am from here and see family and friends as well as uh, uh, colleagues and otherwise. So it's wonderful to be here. Um, and I'm sorry, I just realized I, I didn't give Adam a proper introduction. Oh, yes. let, let me do that now, especially for the people online. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Adam, he is a partner and co-chair of the International Trade Practice at Gibson Dunn, uh, which is a multinational law firm based in Washington, D.C. He's in Australia for only a couple of days, so we're really lucky to have him. But Adam has served as a senior advisor in the Obama administration. He's provided guidance for strengthening sanctions, including on Russia and Syria. 
And he's also provided advice for easing sanctions on countries like Burma and Cuba. And also in the instance where sanctions have been violated, he's give, given advice on how to enforce those sanctions. Um, Adam has chaired the US Treasury delegation to the European Union and G7 consultations regarding Russia's sanctions. And he's worked on Iran's sanctions in conjunction with the Iran nuclear deal. So he brings a huge wealth of experience working in the US Obama administration. And we're really lucky to have him here. So before I... <laughs> I keep going, please go back to uh, your, your answer, Adam. I mean, as I'll discuss a little bit when, we, when I go through, I have a very, very few slides here that I sort of want to take people through. But broadly speaking, sanctions are a very easy tool to use because they are not war, right? They're economic war, but not physical war. And because of that, uh, when you're dealing with a, an intractable, unplacable foe, be it North Korea, be it Russia, be it China, um, there are some very good reasons that you don't want to go into kinetic war. Uh, and so it's a pretty, there's some cynical reasons I'll get into as to why people use sanctions as well. Uh, but that's the very technical sort of geopolitical reason, right? You want to pressure an entity. Um, you have a couple of choices, not as many choices as you might imagine. And this is the tool of choice that you don't necessarily have to put blood and treasure and men and women in harm's way. And then just reflecting briefly before we go into your presentation, um, the impact of sanctions on Russia over the last 18 months. Um, we've seen Russia be quite resilient in the face of a lot of these sanctions. Obviously, the war is still ongoing. So in your view, how, what kind of role has sanctions played? And is it playing a more outsized role than some of the other tools that are being used by governments to exert pressure on Russia, whether that's other kind of political pressure or other countries um, providing, I mean, you think of Elon Musk and how SpaceX has provided assistance to Ukraine. Um, what role is sanctions playing in the overall pressure campaign against Russia? So in some respects, I think the question you're asking is, are sanctions working, right? Which is a very fair question that I get asked a lot. Um, the reality is that if you ask that question with a binary answer, yes or no, it's kind of hard to argue that sanctions are working, right? Because of course, Putin is still in Ukraine, is still committing war crimes, still in Crimea since 2014. Um, however, if you broaden the aperture out a little bit, and I, I, as I may, I'll, I'll argue this in a, in a second, and look at sanctions as a tool, not just to change people's minds, but to make it difficult for them to do the things they want to do, that second piece is very clear. Right? The question is, is Putin waging the war he wants to wage in Ukraine? The answer is undoubtedly no. Right? There are very several anecdotes for this, but, but my favorite one has to do with coffee machines. Right? What's a coffee machine? Nowadays, a coffee machine is a very, very simple uh, product that often has a very small microchip in it. So why are coffee machines important? Because President Putin is unable to get the high-tech equipment he wants. So what he's doing is he's importing coffee machines and then scavenging them, taking out little microchips and sticking them in missiles. Right? That is not the war he wants to be waging. Uh, and I think that the reality is that sanctions and related tools, which we'll talk about what those tools are, um, are giving rise to difficulties for President Putin that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Again, sanctions very rarely, and I can't think of any real examples, have on their own exerted political change. Alongside other sorts of pressure, other sorts of inducement, there, you see some examples. The Iran nuclear deal is the perfect one. Right, that, that Iran would not have come to the table had it not been for sanctions. Was it the only thing that was needed? No, it was necessary, um, maybe not sufficient. And that's a similar situation in Russia, that these sanctions, when the war will end, which it will end, sanctions will not be the reason that they, the sole reason that, end, that it ended, ended the way it did, but it will be a significant piece of why it ended, hopefully in, in, a, in a way that President Putin sort of has questions about whether he did the right thing. Hmm. Now, Adam, I'm going to hand you over to provide your presentation because it gives a fantastic foundation from which to actually understand how sanctions work, when they've worked, when they haven't worked. And then after that presentation, I might ask a couple of follow-ups and then we'll open up to the audience for Q&A. So, Great. Adam, over to you. Wonderful. So, I'm going to stand, stand up because I like to stand up. Um, here we go. So, here's my prediction. My prediction is if there is a war in Taiwan, if there's an invasion, an embargo, a significant increase in sort of tension, sanctions are going to be used. And you might say, okay, why am I so confident? Well, let me tell you a little bit what sanctions are first. I'll tell you why I'm confident in my prediction. Sanctions, this is somewhat of a technical answer of what sanctions are, they're economic restrictions placed by a country on a target. That target can be a person, an organization, a country, a company. 
um, that is trying to respond to that target's disfavored behavior, like invading Ukraine, for example, or invading Taiwan. And what its goal is, is to degrade the target's ability to continue this behavior that people don't like and to persuade the target to reconsider its behavior. And I apologize for the very US-centered spelling there. Um, I, sorry about that. Um, so why am I so confident that sanctions are gonna be used? And this is where politics, cynicism, economics all sort of come to play. I'm confident because of the history of when these tools have been used. The tools that are already in place. So you might say, well, sanctions on China, there really aren't sanctions on China. There are already sanctions on China in some respects. So that's already in place and ready to sort of to roll up even further. And then incentives, incentives for policymakers. Why is it that policymakers have really glommed onto this tool and imposed 12,000 plus sanctions on Russia? History. The top chart here demonstrates where we've been, where we are, and I think where we're going. The top left here, that number 69 represents in 2000, believe it or not, there were 69 separate sanctions programs that the US had. So what's a sanctions program? A sanctions program is a foreign policy crisis or national emergency of some sort that somebody in the executive branch has decided sanctions are a good piece of with respect to a response, right? So in 2000, you had sanctions on Cuba, as I'm sure you're well aware, Libya, Yugoslavia, Iran, former Yugoslavia now, and narcotics traffickers, WMD proliferators, et cetera. There were 69 separate bases for sanctions. That's a lot, but nothing like you have now. Right now, in fact, that was 2021, you had 176. You actually have close to 200 now. That means there are 200 national crises defined only by the president, him or herself, that somebody has decided it was worth imposing sanctions on. Uh, in order to, as a either a response, full or complete or partial response to a national security crisis. Um, I can tell you from my experience when I was at the White House, it was a rare two week fortnight period where I did not get a call from somebody in government telling me that there is an emergency in name your jurisdiction, name your country. Shouldn't we impose sanctions on this person, this entity, or have a sanctions program for this purpose? It is a reflexive tool. And there's reasons for that, which I'll get into in a moment. The other component about where we've been is this list of the, the, the chart, which looks somewhat like a, like a, like a, like a, like a hard, like almost a heart attack, right? It keeps going up and up and up. So this is the year down the, down the bottom, 2022, uh, 2002, 2022. And these are the number of new additions to the US sanctions list on a year by year basis. It's gone up and up, regardless whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the, in the White House. And, and similarly, regardless what the issues are in the world. It's obviously gone up rather significantly since 2015, 2016, and of course last year with 12,000 new additions and sanctions and all the rest, it's gone up rather significantly. But what this chart doesn't show is actually the impact of these measures. Because prior to 2010, the US sanctions were, there were US sanctions in place on, as I said, Cuba, former Yugoslavia, et cetera. These were not important economic actors. Right, these are regional players. Uh, the largest economy the US had ever gone after prior to 2010 was, was Iran. Um, before that, it was only non-economies, right? Cuba, North Korea, these aren't real economic actors in any, any real sense. And so all of the sanctions that were being added prior to 2010, if you think about what, I, what the definition of sanctions are, is that restricting the ability of parties to engage with certain entities, it was not really important. Right? Because if you sanction a Cuban entity or a narcotics trafficker, which is what most of the entities were prior to 2010, it didn't really matter because big banks, corporations, countries didn't really care. Starting in 2010, significant sanctions on Iran. And then of course, starting in 2014, significant sanctions on Russia and then significantly more on Russia in 2022. What that means is that not only have the entities continue to go up with respect to who's being sanctioned, but the impact of every entity is significantly greater because amongst the 2,500 new additions last year, weren't just the average narcotics trafficker or Cuban uh, sort of front company that people didn't really care about, they were Russian energy companies, some of the largest banks in the world, right? So the impact of these measures is actually greater than even this incredible chart suggests, right? Because the economic importance of the parties you're sanctioning are significantly greater. So that's the history. Right, and so there's one thing I can tell you sort of about bureaucracies uh, and history of bureaucracies that they like to sort of aggrandize power when they can. They're already aggrandizing, they will continue to do so. Existing tools. So you might not think of China as currently being under sanctions and you're right to a degree, 
right? It's not as though it's comprehensively restricted by anybody, the US or otherwise. It's not as though transactions with China are illegal. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't significant restrictions in China already in place. There are restrictions with respect to sanctions. In other words, there are hundreds, in fact, close to 500 individuals, entities, organizations in China that are sanctioned. Sanctioned for activities in Xinjiang for human rights violations, activities in Hong Kong with respect to democratization, activities for supporting DPRK or supporting Iran, uh, militarization of the South China Sea, all of that has given rise to actual sanctions. There are also export restrictions now as well. So you are limited, in fact, it's illegal to ship certain goods or technologies, certainly in the high-tech sector, into China. Um, and so that's a significant restriction that, of course, people are very concerned about in China because they sort of rely upon many of these imports for their goods and services. And then, of course, there are import restrictions. This is a, a new one that I started working on really just in the past uh, eight months. Right? This is a brand new law that was passed in June of last year. Uh, it's called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the UFLPA. And what that law allows the US government to do, the Customs and Border Protection people, the guys who run the ports essentially, is that they can detain any good um, if they think that it has um, some component made in part or in whole by slave labor, right? Which this is a great idea, it's understood, but what the, how they're interpreting it is really quite shocking. Um, so the, the issue of the day during Christmas week of last year um, was PVC pipe. You know PVC pipe, that white pipe for pipe for, um, for, uh, for plumbing? They were detaining PVC pipe. And they were saying that PVC pipe was being made of sl slave labor. And my clients, some of the largest DIY sort of companies in America, said to me, so what do we do here? And I said, well, we answered their question. We say, we tell them where the PVC pipe is from. And so they looked it up and said, well, the PVC pipe is from some factory in far um, Eastern China, nowhere near Xinjiang, nowhere near slave labor. And, and so we gave that information to the customs. They said, no, 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 no. I wanna know where the PVC itself is from. In other words, not where the factory is, but the parts that go into the PVC. So I didn't know this at the time, but now I do. PVC, polyvinyl chloride, uh, who knew? I didn't know. Um, but they wanted to know where the chloride came from. They wanted to know where the salt that you needed to use in order to create the chloride came from. And so this was sort of, and this is why these goods have not just been limited and sort of detained, but they've now been rejected, right? They're actually forcing the sale and resale of this PVC pipe outside the United States. So these tools are already in place and turning them up is actually fairly simple. Um, so that's another reason I'm confident that sanctions will be used. And last but not least, and this is where I get a little cynical with respect to incentives. So as I said earlier, when you're dealing with a country or company, an entity, an organization, an individual you don't like as, an internet, as a player like the US government, the Aussie government or what have you, the tools you have in your arsenal to deal with that are actually not as many as you might imagine. So you could sort of engage in sort of diplomacy and sort of, sort of give very harshly worded statements of concern and sort of derision and whatnot, um, and that's fine. Uh, the impact of that is limited. Or you could send in the military, right? You could send in the military, men and women in harm's way. That's not, a, that's, not that's politically dangerous, it's morally dangerous. It's incredibly expensive, it can take a long time. You compare that to sanctions, right? The tools of sanctions. What's fascinating about sanctions is for the government, they cost nothing, right? Literally nothing. Now, it's a bit of a joke because I have a job, I can pay my mortgage because it's not free, right? Someone is paying me because they're concerned about the sanctions, but as a practical matter for governments, it doesn't cost anything because what sanctions actually are is outsourced foreign policy and national security. Because what's happening is the government says, I've made a decision that I'm going to sanction this Chinese entity, right? A big corporation from Xinjiang, XPCC, a very, very large state-owned corporation that's allegedly involved in slave labor. So that goes on the list, right? The list. And then who has to interpret what that means? Who has to apply that? Who has to enforce that? the private sector has to do all of those things, right? So in other words, it's not the government that actually is implementing or interpreting or enforcing. The first line of all of those things is the private sector. So it's not a surprise that during our week here in Sydney, we've met with all of the big banks in Australia, as well as major corporations, because they're the ones that are on the front lines here in a way that's really quite amazing. And that reason, the reason that, that you see this incredible growth of sanctions, no matter the party, is that, right? There's no incentive not to impose sanctions. Quite the opposite. The every incentive is to impose them because you can demonstrate you're strong uh, without actually incurring any budget penalty for doing so. And so that's one of the big reasons that, that, that sanctions are sort of here 
And they've been here, they're here to stay, and they're gonna be in the future. So will they work? Sanctions can only work if two things are true. If they deny a target access to the things the targets want or needs, right? So this is obviously an obvious one, but let's make sure we understand what that means, that what sanctions are doing are denying a target, be it a company, an organization, a country of certain things. If the country or the company doesn't need those things, who cares, right? They'll continue doing the things that they're gonna do and it doesn't, it's not gonna sort of bite. The second thing is, as I said, the private sector is actually on the front lines here. Sanctions only work in the way that they're supposed to be designed to work if the private sector understands them, complies them, and doesn't over comply with them, which has happened quite significantly. I'll tell you a good example. These sort of little logos are a good example of that. So very shortly, very, very briefly, what does China want and need, right? They need, it's a long list, admittedly, but they need access to Western technology. They need access to Western markets, right? Consumer markets, supplies, and otherwise. And they need access to the US dollar. And you might think that's kind of odd. Why would China have its own currency? Why do they need access to the US dollar? Because the US dollar still is the medium of global exchange, bar none, right? So 90% of global foreign exchange has the US dollar on one side of that transaction, right? 60% of all global reserve currencies are held in the US dollar. The yuan, the Chinese currency, 3%, right? So it's not even close. If you want to do trade, you have to be involved in the US dollar. You've got to engage the US dollar. Um, and I can, and we can talk about whether that's at risk if they continue to weaponize the dollar like this, but clearly China needs all three of those things. The uncertain private sector response is actually a pretty key question here. Um, will they comply? How will they respond to Chinese counter sanctions? Because the other piece here that's really interesting is that China's not sitting on its hands. These measures are being um, responded to by China by making it very difficult for parties in China to comply. If you are a, an Aussie company in Shanghai, you've got to comply with your Australian obligations, but you've also got to comply with Chinese obligations. And those obligations, mind you, might say it's illegal for you to engage in a way to further US sanctions, right? That's illegal under Chinese law. And so how do you navigate that? That's still very, um, that, that's, that's conjecture in a way because China hasn't actually put that down. It's, it's, in, it's in the law, but it's never been imposed or, or applied, but that's certainly coming. And then overcomply. The reason overcompliance has become a real huge issue um, is, is Russia, right? In the Russia case, these are all little logos of companies. Um, a thousand companies since 2022, February, 2022, have left Russia or otherwise have limited their, plot, their, their, their footprint in Russia somehow. Over a thousand companies, right? Western companies, Aussie companies, US, European, et cetera. In exactly zero cases, in other words, zero of the thousand cases, were companies compelled to leave by law, right? There were other reasons they were leaving, right? They were being pressured by non governmental organizations, pressured by, by shareholders, by, by media reports about how terrible it is that they're working with a regime that's engaging in Ukraine or otherwise. There are all these non economic stakeholders that have caused these companies and many else like them to engage in ways that are beyond what the sanctions have been, have been asking. And so why is that important? It's important because if you think about sanctions and the tools of sanctions as surgical tools to sort of target specific entities or enterprises, and in fact, the people who are actually implementing them, the private sector folks are not viewing them as surgical, but viewing, viewing them as blanket, right? So these companies, McDonald's, for example, has left Russia. Is it illegal for McDonald's to sell hamburgers in Red Square? No, it isn't. It's not illegal under US law or otherwise. And yet they've decided that the whole place is off limits. And so what that does is it reduces the surgical nature of the, of the sanction and arguably reduces the impact of the sanctions in a way that the policymakers intended. So this is a, a significant, significant concern. All in, the real question, and we can talk more about how the private sector sort of thinks about these things and why this has become such a serious issue for the US government and others, the question really is how much is China willing to sacrifice? Because there's no question in anybody's mind, especially now with Chinese economy being somewhat weaker than people thought, they're having in deflationary pressures, they're no longer even publishing some of their unemployment status stats because they're so concerned about spooking the markets. That's not a good sign for spooking them if they're not going to give information. Now, it's certainly the case that, that unlike Kim Jong-un in North Korea, I don't think President Xi has any interest in starving his populace. Kim Jong-un is more than happy to starve his populace. Um, but he's still going to have to have that question about how much is he willing to sacrifice when his hands is actually weaker than it had been because his economics are weaker than, than, than they were. So that's really the question. So even so, all of this, I mean, in, light, in line of sort of the, the understanding of why, of 
why sanctions are going to be imposed, they will, there's no question that if sanctions are imposed, which I think they would be, the outcome for China would be awful. The outcome for the United States and the world would also be awful, right? This is a mutually assured destruction situation. Um, that doesn't mean they won't be imposed. In fact, I think it's still very likely that they would. Uh, but I think the outcome for everybody is going to be really quite problematic. So that's all I have. I just have a, these, these, a couple of slides, um, but I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, I recognize sanctions are both simple in a way, but also fairly complex on the, on, certainly on the margins. And I'm happy to sort of talk to you about that, how the administration thinks about sanctions, how the US government works with the Australians and others about sort of imposing sanctions, et cetera. Thank you so much, Adam. Would you like to take a seat? Sure. And look, I've written down a couple of questions, so I might take the moderator's uh, prerogative to ask a couple and really encourage you to start thinking of your own. But um, I'm really regretting only making this a one hour event and not an hour and a half because I really have so many questions about history of sanctions, you know, countries that are the most sanctioned and times when it worked and when it didn't work and why. Um, but this scenario that we've brought tonight is around thinking about China and thinking about our own region in reflection to what we've seen happen in Europe. And it was a starting point for this conversation about how sanctions can be used. So I, I guess reflecting on your presentation, one of the first questions I had was where we finished up, which was talking about the private sector. Um, and you mentioned the fact that sanctions don't cost governments anything, but they cost the private sector a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering in legal fees alone yeah which is great yeah <laughs> <laughs> business is booming indeed um th this question around will the private sector comply i mean is there anything that um companies can do to change the outcome if it means that their business is no longer viable and is there any instance in which cases they don't comply what happens when companies don't comply with sanctions and therefore the sanctions don't bite so to answer the second question first, if sanctions don't comply, they can face rather significant consequences. And there are two sorts of consequences uh, that are legal, and then there's one that's, that's, again, related to the private sector response. So there are two responses that happen if you don't comply with U US sanctions. You can get sanctioned yourself, right? So an entity that is not complying with the US desires can end up on the US blacklist. Um, and if you end up on the US blacklist, two things happen at least two. First of all, all of your assets in the United States are frozen, right? So if you've got bank accounts, you've got real estate, you've got uh, exposure to the market, et cetera, all of that is frozen, including intellectual property. You might think, okay, that's no good because uh, the US is a big market, um, but why would I really care about that as an Aussie company? The reason you care about it is the second thing. As I mentioned earlier, the US dollar is still the principal medium of exchange globally. That means that even for countries that don't use the US dollar and are trading with one another, the chances are very good that they're pricing and engaging in transactions in the US dollar. So what does that mean as a practical matter? It means if you're in Turkey and selling something to the UAE and you're pricing that in dollars like copper or something like that, the way the transaction actually works is you've got a bank in Istanbul and a bank in Dubai that talk to each other, but the transaction doesn't go Istanbul, Dubai. It goes Istanbul, New York, New York, New York, New York, Dubai. What's happening in New York is the correspondent banks are doing the dollarization, broadly speaking. And the reason that's relevant is that the moment a transaction hits New York, it's under US jurisdiction, which means that if anybody in that transaction chain is sanctioned, right, or otherwise prohibited from a US perspective, that's the, 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 the banks on either side, the originator, the destination, they can't do that transaction. And so if you don't comply with sanctions, you end up not being able to engage in global finance in a formal way because you can't engage in the you can't engage in a transaction involving us dollars which is a death knell uh for many many companies and many many entities i mean when i was this was this was a big threat that i made when i was um in the government going around the world yelling at people about iran sanctions um i would basically sit down with the qatari bank or a sri lankan tea merchant and i'd say you guys are selling stuff to iran you know the us doesn't want you to do that and they'd, they'd look at me and they'd say well well mr smith you know, we need to, like Iran's just over there, right? And, and we sell, this is where we get it, we, we sell our tea. And I said, okay, if you do that, um, you could lose your access to the US dollar. And the discussion immediately changed, right? I mean, well, first of all, it became a lot less, less a lot, lot more hostile, <laughs> the discussion, but it also became a lot more effective because people said, oh my God, I can't afford to lose that the access to the US dollar. So that's one outcome. If you don't comply also, and you're engaging in transactions that nonetheless involve the US or otherwise, you can get fined, or you can get thrown in jail, right? Two examples of that, you have the BNP Paribas, the biggest French bank, 
2012, they were fined $9 billion, that's with a B, um, but because of violations of US sanctions, it's a French bank, not a US bank, a French bank. Um, so that's one example. Another example is that there was a, a banker in Turkey that was helping a Turkish bank to sort of basically violate US sanctions by sort of funneling Iranian funds through it into New York, et cetera. Um, that individual um, was, uh, was, uh, didn't, was sort of under inquiry from the US government, shall we say. Uh, he went with his family on vacation to Disneyland, Disney World rather, in Orlando. US Marshal Service met the plane, arrested him, and he ended up in jail uh, in, in, in Southern, Southern District of, of, um, of New York in Manhattan. Um, and of course, the end of that story is that he was then released. He went back to Turkey and is now the president of the, of the Turkish Stock Exchange. So there's a, there's a bright <laughs> ending for all of us. Um, so so that's, that's the outcome of what happens so if you don't. He's, he's gone to another Disney World experience yeah, then. <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, so that's what happens if you don't comply with sanctions. So it's certainly true that some people don't still, but those are rather significant penalties that most parties don't want to risk. I'm just going to draw out one more question for myself and then we'll have a roving microphone to get audience questions. But we have touched on this a little bit. Um, we've talked about Russia and China. If people are just going to take away one thing from tonight, one thing that they can remember about why the situation with Russia and sanctions is going to be different to any type of scenario with China and sanctions. Can you explain why the two countries are so different in terms of their vulnerability to sanctions and why the situation is different? So the simplest way to think about it um, is just a question of size. And I like to use my, my, my Aussie analogy here, that if you think about the Iran sanctions program, that is akin to like schoolboy cricket, right? If you think about the Russia sanctions program, that's like first class Sheffield Shield kind of cricket. And if you think about China, you're dealing with like the ashes, right? There's like serious, you know, most senior sort of folks that sort of you hope adults are involved, right? It's just a different ballgame, right? If you think about it just from a US perspective, the Russian economy, the Russian US trade prior, in, prior to 2022 was about 40, $50 billion a year. Last year, US China trade was about 700 billion. Right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's just a, the magnitude is significantly different. Now, that means that there's both potential ability for China to potentially withstand some of the sanctions because it's so broad, um, but the vulnerability there because most of those transactions are in US dollar. Um, they rely very heavily on the US for a lot of their things, but more generally the West. And in fact, one of the interesting pieces, you know, sitting here in, in Australia is that Australia has been either conscripted or volunteered, I can't tell, uh, into sort of the U.S. effort to sort of be strong against China, right? The, the, the placement of Marines in Darwin, the signing of the AUKUS agreement, this places Australia very much at the pointy end of the spear uh, in a way that they never had been before. And so if you, if you add the Australians and the fact that, they, that China relies upon the iron ore from, from WA uh, for a large measure of its iron ore, there's a significant vulnerability they have vis-a-vis -vis the West in general that is different than, than, than Russia. The Russian vulnerability was principally vis-a-vis -vis Europe, right? And so, so long, once the Europeans realized they couldn't live without Russian oil, but they, it's, without Russian gas, but they could potentially live without Russian oil, there was a really interesting impact there. And of course, Russia also had some um, vulnerabilities with respect to relying upon Western tech for their military. So all of that, I think, has come to pass. China is, is a bit more robust and more um, diversified in, in many respects. However, because of that, they have those vulnerabilities as well. And, but the big difference is going to be that whereas companies, countries, et cetera, could turn their backs on Russia without significant damage, at least in the long term, it's going to be a lot harder to do that uh, in China. Well, point well made. Okay. We've got some questions uh, and we do have a microphone. What I'll ask you to do is, um, even if you know Adam, uh, please identify yourself for everybody else and where you come from. We've all been to these events before, so there'll be a lot of questions. Please keep your questions short rather than a speech. Uh, and this gentleman in the front, please uh, invite you to give the first question and the microphone is just there for you. My name is Ed Scabaris. I'm retired, but I used to be an actor. I'm looking at the long-term consequences of... One of the things that I've been reading is that uh, many of the countries which have now, to which the United States has now turned for supplies, are actually getting their supplies from China and passing them on, point one. So that doesn't cause so much economic consequence to China. And two, it actually builds the relationship between China and countries 
that the United States would not like to see them with, Indeed. I think in terms of loss. The other thing is, you mentioned size, but also structure and ability. And I'm just thinking to how, mu how much would sanctions actually encourage autarky in China in the key industries? In other words, it's forcing the China to develop those uh, uh, industries upon which it was dependent in the United States, which actually is detrimental to the United States' longer interests. So when I saw your cost being free, I'm taking a wider definition. If you take the longer term strategic and economic consequences of this, aren't you just shooting yourself in the foot? I mean, the US, to, to complain or to state that the US shoots itself in the foot, you'd not be the first person who's made that, that rather cogent um, <laughs> understanding and that you wouldn't be wrong. Um, that there are certain, there, listen, there are clear costs to sanctions. Again, I have a job because their sanctions are not free. Uh, it's very explicit, I mean, so much so that there was a time where my wife wanted to put, well, I wanted to put Trump's name on our house because he was paying for our mortgage. Uh, my wife said no. So it's like the Trump Palace, Washington. But um, so it's certainly the case that, that they're not free. Um, but here's some of the other problems with, with that. I mean, first of all, um, even if they're not free, the problem with the US system, and this is a broader problem, is that the US only really thinks in two and four year increments, because that's the congressional and presidential election terms. And so a lot of these costs exist, but they're not immediate. And so it's a lot harder to sort of internalize them as a matter of policy and executive action. Um, that's a sad, very cynical statement, but I, unfortunately, I think it's, it's, it's quite accurate. The second piece, of course, is that it's certainly true that it, it can create and encourage internal development of goods and services by denying the external. Absolutely. The problem is that some of the, the technology is so sophisticated um, that even the U.S. doesn't have it, right? The perfect example for that is, is advanced lithography machines, which are the machines used for the, to, to basically etch the most, senior, the most uh, sophisticated chips. There's exactly one company in the entire world in the Netherlands that does those that, that does that lith uh, lithography, and China can't do it. The U.S. can't do it. Fortunately, the Netherlands is part of NATO and is close to the United States, and so it's part of that sort of alliance. So it's not the case that China forever will be sort of impoverished and living in caves if they don't have the U.S. access to technology. Eventually, they will. The question is, how quickly will they get it, um, and can they afford to wait? Right. And I think what the U.S. is also playing up is that if they can make the Chinese economy struggle and the inability for them to have youth employment and to sort of engage in a way to sort of increase 20% every year, 15% as it has for the best many years, that could really be a huge problem for President Xi. And even that doesn't create a democracy in Beijing, um, it could create a situation in which President Xi doesn't want to do things to sort of upend the balance with respect to Taiwan or elsewhere. Sorry? No, um, there's, there's a shockingly limited amount of forethought uh, given to impact. Um, there's exactly two cases I know of in which OFAC, the former the agency I used to work for, the sanctions agency, has actually gone back and assessed the impact of sanctions. That was with respect to narcotics traffickers in Sudan many, many years ago. Um, they finally hired their first economist literally in the past several months. Um, they don't think about those sorts of things. And the, the US government, I mean, having been in the National Security Council, I can tell you, is, a, um, is very bad at planning because it's, it's crisis management all the time. And I, 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 it's one shiny ball is what it is. You can look at one shiny ball and that's it. And then you drop it and the next shiny ball comes up. So very little of that sort of assessment. People are thinking about it in their academics and think tanks. It's not, that's not a, a completely foreign concept, but it's not something that I, if I'm honest, that the policymakers are actually considering. Um. This gentleman here with the white scarf. Thank you for the good presentation. Um, my name is Hoi. I'm an IR student and I'm from Korea. Um, I read this thing where I uh, saw this explanation where sanctions are kind of like nuclear weapons or cluster munitions in the way that they can target civilians more, more sometimes than they target the actual targets. So, and, and you know, um, like Russia right now, there's a lot of people living in poverty in Russia and China. Also, there are a lot of people living in poverty. So, you know, I'm thinking these people are the ones who are actually suffering and kind of paying for it. So how does governments or specifically like the U.S. government, how do they consider that or balance that when you're deciding to sanction this or that? 
It's a good question. I mean, historically, not much, but increasingly they're thinking long and hard about it. Uh, so much so that at the end of last year, the United States um, ordered basically a broad exemption across all of its sanctions programs, the 170 programs uh, that, that allow the free flow of humanitarian, agricultural, food, medicine, medical devices across all sanctions programs. So that's, so as a legal matter, it's not a problem. The problem is twofold. One, you have private sector entities that are unwilling to do the trade anyway because of the concerns about risk. Uh, so for example, um, pharmaceutical exceptions into Iran have been long the rule, but I spent quite a lot of time in Switzerland talking to pharmaceutical companies that were unwilling to do trade into Iran because they were concerned about the second piece. That is that you can trade into Iran with your pharmaceuticals. How do you know who's getting that medicine? Right? So if you're in a jurisdiction like Iran, for example, you send it in, trying to give it to a hospital for cancer patients, and A, if it's like radioactive isotopes, are they going to use it for other purposes? Or B, are they just going to use it for themselves, the IRGC and the sort of the hierarchy under the, after the Supreme Leader, and just arbitrage it, right? sell it somewhere else and not actually give the, the, the goods and services that's needed? So that's the challenge. Uh, the U.S. government, there's only so much the U.S. government or other governments can do if the jurisdiction that you're trying to give the services to is willing to sacrifice its own people. And that's what you're seeing. So there are a lot of questions. The first one will be that lady there. And then the next is gentleman in the Navy jumper. And then, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Nin and I'm from Bamar. And Sanshin is really, really controversial for me as well. Like my uh, one of the friends already mentioned about the social economic impact on the poverty and so on. So I will skip that question. And but I would like to ask, uh, would you consider as a political cause with a uh, U.S. United States citizen? Which I mean is like one day is a sanction. Uh, for instance, in the Venezuela, when you have a lot of impose on the sanction, economic crisis happen and the migration is increased. Right. Then there is a spillover effect on the regional country. And sometimes some of the nation country are quite, the host country are quite reluctant to receive the migrant because they think that migrant will take over their job and so on. All such consequence may have a circular impact on the sanction consequence. So that is one of my question. Do you consider it as a political cause with the United States nation itself because you do sanction on this particular country, which is have spillover effect on your country? Um, my second question is like for the let, let's let's deal with that one first. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure I fully understood the question. The question was: uh, Do people is there a concern about the spillover, the spillover effect of effects. sanctions into neighboring countries? Sure, I'll give you a good example in Myanmar. I mean, I spent a lot of time working on Myanmar when I was in the government. Um, there, there's a, a tar who they target in Myanmar is often very restricted is restricted because of regional issues. So, for example. Um, one of the big entities that has not been targeted in Myanmar is the uh, Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprises, the Mogi, the oil company. And the reason for that is not because we want to continue giving money to the, the Junta and Nepida. No, it's because a lot of that energy produced by, by Mogi actually goes to Thailand, right? So in order to keep the, the lights on in Bangkok, you need to not sanction Mogi. Uh, and that's what they've done. So there's, there is concern about that. Um, but as I said, much like the, the gentleman's uh, initial question, that sort of collateral effect is, is a part of the analysis, but rarely a driving force of it. I will actually go on the next question because we've got a lot to get through. And if there is time at the end, we'll come back to you. But actually, just to follow up with that as well, is part of the idea around the sanction, if your neighbouring countries then reinforce that you should be complying with whatever is being asked of you, is that also a factor of how countries do come back into line if the neighboring countries feel annoyed by what they've done and they're being impacted by the sanction? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think that's definitely fair. I mean, there's a reason that when I was in the government, I visited all of the countries around Iran, right? <laughs> all of them. Those were some interesting trips to Turkmenistan. Um, and, and so, because it impacted them, there are two reasons. One, they were the source of diversion, which was a problem, but also it was impacting them, right? It, it, did, it was not good uh, for um, Azerbaijan to have a huge neighbor being sanctioned that was impacting its ability to do what it needed to do as well. And so, yeah, I mean, Azerbaijan is not gonna pressure uh, Iran, at least not effectively, but it doesn't help Iran to have these neighbors these relations that, 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 yeah. that, that, that are sort of sour. This gentleman in the Navy jumper. <clears throat> Yeah, Les Copeland, University of Sydney, and my background's in agriculture. Is there a time period when 
uh, workarounds make sanctions ineffective. And with this increased amount of sanctions, this must leave a political burden on things that are just not working. Uh, are they ever removed or is that prevented by political hubris? So there, again, a cynical answer to that, and people ask me this a lot, how do you get off the sanctions list so that you're done? The easiest way to get off the sanctions list is to die, um, which is not recommended. And even then that might not work. Um, so the reality is that it's, it's not a one-way ratchet, but it's pretty dang close. Um, as you know, there have been sanctions on Cuba since 1960. Uh, there are still sanctions on the former Yugoslavia. It has not been a war there since 1989. Um, so it's a very hard to sort of remove. And it's hard to remove for political reasons because it's, because again, it's so costless, not actually costless, but costless as a matter of sort of policy to say, I'm strong on X, um, that it's hard to sort of get it removed. The other piece, which is challenging to as a formal matter, is that Sanctions, as I've described them, are principally an executive tool. In other words, the president makes decisions in order to do this, and the president can then remove sanctions and put them on. There's a lot of flexibility there until Congress gets involved, right? When Congress passes laws that impose sanctions, the way the executive works in our system, you guys have a fused executive legislative system. We have an executive branch that executes the law, right? So if Congress passes a law that says you have to impose sanctions on Iran in these ways, the executive can only execute that law, right? The executive can't undo that law. And so, for example, in the Iran context, when there are six pieces of legislation that demanded sanctions on Iran, President Obama was limited in what he could do to relieve those sanctions even when he wanted to under the nuclear deal. So there's a problem politically removing sanctions, and there's a problem in some cases even legally removing sanctions. Can I ask a follow-up to that, which is, would sanctions be more effective if they could be lifted more easily because you're providing a carrot for countries yeah, to Absolutely, comply? absolutely. There's no question that the fact that the U.S. is unable to... Um, legitimately and persuasively guarantee robust and sustainable sanctions relief is a huge problem. And is it because it becomes a political issue that they just want to look tough? Yeah, exactly. And so, for example, I, I, was in, I was in Brussels a week and a half ago talking to the European Commission about Iran and sanctions issues associated with Iran. And the issue there is that from a sanctions relief perspective, the Iranians don't believe that sanctions relief can be real. And the reason for that is because when they did it the first time in 2015, it wasn't real. Um, and the reality, of course, is the US can't guarantee that either, partly because the private sector needs to actually invest in Iran for it to be real relief. And the other part is that these six pieces of legislation aren't going anywhere, right? So it's a very hard thing to do to say that we're gonna impose sanctions, we're gonna demand you to change your behavior and then not be able to change, to change the sanctions when behavior seemingly changes. We'll have this gentleman here and then this gentleman in the front row have been waiting very patiently. Hi, thanks. Very enlightening. My name is Paul. So I think it was last week I was reading um, that Russia is thinking about switching to a digital currency. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's kind of unexpected. And my question is, you know, you personally, what have your thoughts been in terms of like unintended consequences and related? So if, if one of the things you're asking is, is, is the movement to a digital currency going to limit the ability for the U.S. to weaponize the U.S. dollar because you don't need it anymore? So in that perspective, my view, and I'm very um, sanguine, rose-colored glasses about this, I think that the likelihood of that happening in a meaningful way to limit the ability for sanctions to work is incredibly low. And I say that for two reasons. There's a reason people use the US dollar, right? People use the US dollar, for the first reason is because everyone else uses the US dollar, right? That's a silly reason to think about it, but that's true. In other words, if you are doing a trade with anyone in the world, the reflex is to use US dollars. So there's this network effect that gives rise to the reality that you've got 90% of global trade is still priced in the dollar, et cetera. So that's a ubiquity argument. Now, China is overcoming some of that by demanding renminbi-based trading with respect to Moscow, doing some Southeast Asia stuff. That's, but that's only one reason people use the US dollar. The other piece, and this is sort of the opposite in some respects than people's usual thinking on the subject, is that if you are subjecting yourself to US jurisdiction by using the US dollar, you got to comply with all these crazy weaponization rules, sanctions, export controls, et cetera, but there's also a significant benefit you get, right? Because the question for a business, a bank, a fiduciary of any sort is not really when you're doing a trade that works. If you're doing a trade that works, who cares? You trade in whatever currency you want. It's when you're doing a trade that doesn't work, right? When there's a problem and you need to actually get redress and contractual demands being met and actually appear before court in a court that you can trust with jurisprudence and jurisdiction and actually have property rights being protected. The question then is, if I'm in New York because my currency transited that way and I end up in a court in lower Manhattan, would I rather be there? Would I rather be in a court in provincial China? Or if you're using Bitcoin, provincial nowhere, 
right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the question. And so in my mind, so long as the ubiquity piece exists, which it certainly does, and the institutional piece exists, I don't actually see many, I, the only chance of sort of overcoming that is if someone has both, right? The Europeans have the institutional piece, clearly as rule of law, et cetera. They don't have the ubiquity piece, all right? And China could theoretically get the ubiquity piece, but if anything, they've moved back on the institutional piece, right? They start, they, the CCP has been in really weighing in on sort of the, the rule of law. Um, and instead, it's, it's, it's more and more the rule by law, as my colleague in Hong Kong will tell me. Um, you know, they're using the, to, the, the courts to upend contractual rights, right? De demand IP sort of protections be removed for foreign parties, et cetera, et cetera. So it really makes you wonder, if you're gonna use a digital currency or use a currency other than the dollar, is that really a risk you wanna be taking? My big fear is the difficulty of, un of, of unwinding, unwinding these measures, because then it, it, it really becomes a one-way ratchet that is very challenging to overcome. Um, and it becomes a, a, a really blunt tool uh, that, that you can't sort of provide any sort of services, help, or hope for parties who are under the, under the cudgel. I was lucky we got bonus question because we got to hear about the currency piece as well on that. Very, very helpful. Uh, this gentleman here in the front row with the jumper. My name is Michael, and I'm not in economics, I'm in law, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Given your comments on Congress, the executive, and the role of president, and so on, if the funny thing happens later in the year and there's a change of presidency to uh, whatever, could that change the whole situation regarding sanctions or whatever? Or is it so stuck in with Congress and executive? No, it could change it rather significantly because what Congress, Congress does pass legislation to impose sanctions, as I said, but they move very slowly. The president still implements the law and can move very, very quickly. And so it is 100% the case if, if, if we're thinking of like a Trump re-election or something like that, God forbid, I will be moving back to Sydney um, or somewhere else, frankly. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> big country. Um, I think what you would see, I mean, you saw that when Trump was elected, the, the Obama sanctions relief with respect to Iran, with respect to Cuba, um, they, the Iran one was completely unwound, right? He basically pulled out of the nuclear deal. Um, and so, yes, I mean, the president has significant authority to sort of make life very difficult. He also imposed sanctions on TikTok and WeChat. He, in a very, in, a, in one of the, the, the brightest days in US diplomacy, he, he sanctioned the International Criminal Court, right? And the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Um, so yeah, it changes significantly depending on who's in the White House. Um, but but and it changes more in the imposition than the, the unwinding, right? Congress's real restriction is when is the unwinding uh, rather than the imposition. We've got time for one more question. Um, and I, I did see that gentleman uh, on the corner, on the aisle first. So apologies to other folks, but um, we'll give the last question to you, sir. Uh, hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm a student here I'm from Dallas, Texas. So it was kind of a, it was, question was similar to what he was speaking. There's been reports about certain countries that are considering ditching the US dollar and kind of undermining what you were talking about of like most nations today kind of have a de facto reflex of using the US dollar and like their effort is to undermine that. And uh, I was wondering like, is these are from my hundreds like india china these major growing economies BRICS, the BRICS, brazil russia india china yeah. south africa Thank you. yeah um and like so they they're not they're major economies that are trying what are the what are the chances of that happening in the next maybe not a couple of years but down the road next decade or so especially when there's reports that China will within a decade probably be a bigger economy than the US. Like when that happens, how does America have its leverage with its with its dollar? It, it would lose it. But with respect to the BRICS, I mean, I've said this a few times, you know, I will let you know when the BRICS uh, decide to establish their own currency together, never, right? Because it's not gonna happen. Um, I, I say that with, with a great degree of confidence because the BRICS, that was a nice acronym, but it actually means nothing <laughs> with respect to the countries that we're talking about. They're all emergent economies, but they don't 
no, they don't have much in common other than that. Um, and so it, on top of that, you still have the same problem, right? So if the BRICS dollar or the BRICS whatever, Euro or the BRICS currency decides to sort of uh, be established, you still have the same problem, right? Do you, do you trust the institutional underpinnings of those jurisdictions? Because currency is not just, you know, dollars, you know, greenbacks. It's, it's a representation of the country itself. And if you're using the currency, you very often have to rely upon that currency, as I said, that country for protection of your rights if things go wrong. And so all of those countries are, I think, at this stage, pale in comparison to the security of a US system, an EU system, an Aussie system, or otherwise, all of which are dollar-based in one way, shape, or form, that I think makes it very unlikely for parties in the global financial sector, global economic sector, or guys in the periphery, sure, um, to actually move in a, in a direction away from the US dollar in the immediate term or even the medium term. Will it happen eventually? Sure. But I just don't see that happening in a way that will impact US policymaking, US interest in engaging in these tools, uh, certainly in, in, in time for, God forbid, you know, Taiwan sort of action by, by China, uh, but even in the medium term. And I say that not so because I want to continue to have a job, right? This is a job security talk as much for me as anything else. That if sanctions are no longer used, then what do I do for my do for my mortgage? Um, but at the end of the day, I still think that there's a benefit there for the most of the world to continue to use, use, use the U.S. dollar. That it feeds into the ability for the U.S. to continue to weaponize it. Is sorry? Would you say it's a long-term concern? Maybe not short-term. Or is this more yeah, of alarmist? It's, it's a long-term concern, but as John Maynard Keynes says, in the long term, we're all dead. So, so yes, absolutely. So there's only a, a couple of things still lingering on my mind that I'm really burning to hear what you think about, Adam, and then I will give you a vote of thanks and, and encourage the audience to thank you as well. But um, two questions I have are, uh, which country should have sanctions relief in your view? And then the last thing is, has there been a time in your career looking at sanctions where a sanction was imposed and there was a really surprising outcome? Um, so when you're talking about sanctions relief, the, the truth of the matter is that even though there are lots and lots of sanctions, most of those sanctions are not jurisdiction-based sanctions, right? So if you think about sanctions that are in place against countries, there are actually very few countries that are comprehensively restricted to which you would have sanctions relief as a national basis. In fact, there are only five, right? There's, there's, there's Cuba, there's North Korea, there's Syria, uh, there's Iran, and then bits and pieces of Ukraine, right? Those are completely off limits from a US perspective, essentially. Um, countries like Russia, countries like China are not comprehensively restricted. And so yes, they are impacted by sanctions, but to talk about sanctions relief in that context, it's a little, it's a little um, difficult to talk about. I'm not like trying to say, Cuba, for example. Yeah. Is that an example of a country that deserves sanctions relief? Deserves. No. Not deserves. I guess, um, has it come time? Sure. I mean, listen, Cuba is a very odd case for a whole host of reasons that have to do largely with the domestic politics of Southern Florida. Um, and so it's the truth. I mean, it's cynical, but accurate. I mean, the Cuban population there is, is quite powerful from an electoral perspective. Um, you know, you look at sanctions in, on Cuba and you, you know, you wonder after what, 1960 to 2023, whether, you know, there's a logic left with respect to why, why they're there. But it's all fine and good to say that, but you literally can't change it because a law was passed in 1997 called the Helms-Burton Act that basically says, and this is somewhat of a paraphrase, that until the democracy, there's democracy in the island and Disneyland opens in Havana, there's not there's still going to be sanctions there. It's not exactly the law, but it's you get like you get the picture. It's a, the sunset provisions are kind of impossible. Um, so the answer is yes. I mean, the, re, the reality is people do get off the sanctions list, but again, it's principally two people, dead people, as I mentioned, um, and, and and counter and narcotics traffickers, right? Narcotics traffickers get off the list a lot, um, and the reason for that is that narcotics traffickers are uniquely susceptible to both being sanctioned because the average narcotics trafficker uh, wants to be in the dark economy as well as having a house in Miami and sending their kids to Georgetown, right? They wanna do both, all three of those things. You can't do the second two if you're sanctioned. And so 
if you are able to sort of demonstrate them that you can live in Miami and send your kid to Georgetown, they will very likely come in from the cold and decide no longer to be sanctioned and then they will get off the sanctions list. This, that same is not true for human rights sanctions and jurisdiction-based sanctions that, you know, focusing on President Putin or otherwise, you are, you know, please leave Crimea uh, or you'll get removed from the sanctions. So you, you can get removed from the sanctions list, this is not gonna happen. So I don't mean to not, not answer no. the question. Uh, I just don't think that, my view as to who deserves sanctions relief is, you know, I, I can tell you about my views on the subject, but it's not particularly relevant from a policy perspective because they can't be removed in a way that we would like them to be. Gotcha. And anything that surprised you? I'll tell you what surprised me um, after doing two or three years of roadshows on the Iran sanctions um, was how effective sanctions were in bringing Iran to the nuclear table. And, and one of the good stories I tell people about that um, is that, and this is, gives you a good sense of sort of the, um, the breadth of the private sector response, right? So I was, in fact, there are two, two interesting stories about it, but the, one was in, I was in Central Asia, a small country in Central Asia, and the, uh, the embassy had put me together with a bunch of the banks, and one of the banks in particular was an up-and-coming institution, and I sat down with the chairman of the bank, and he, and he said, you know, Mr. Mr. Adam, I'm, I'm so glad you're here from OFAC, right, the sanctions arm of the U.S. government, um, and, and I said, yeah, I'm here, you know, what can you tell me? And he goes, well, I want you to know that we run all of our, all of our transactions through the U.S. sanctions list. We do it twice. And I said, really, why do you do that? Do you trade with U.S. people? No, no trading with U.S. people. Do you trade in U.S. goods or services? No. Do you trade in U.S. dollars? No. I said, so why do you care about U.S. sanctions? He goes, because that's what banks do, right? It was this view that the way you engage in financial, the financial sector is by engaging in a way that is consistent with what the U.S. wants want you to do. It was this soft power of the U.S. that was really surprising and that gave direct rise to... Um, to, to the ability for, for Iran to realize that it didn't have a choice. Um, and so that was a big surprise to me how effective that threat was of sort of losing access to the US dollar, losing the good housekeeping seal of sort of engaging, uh, even for banks and others that had no connection at all with the United States, it was just so important to them. So that was very surprising to me, was this the real power of the tool. Wow, Adam, thank you so much for all of your expertise this evening. Uh, I mean, I felt like we could ask Adam anything and he had an answer. It was like an encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, so it's been a really uh, big tour of all of the different issues. I think we've all learned a lot. Could you please join me in thanking Mr. Adam 